I don't know about you, but it seems that in life there are things that are just experientially true. I don't have data to back any of this up, but it seems that the things in life that we experience seem to be true. Let me give you some examples. Ice cream is amazing. Indiana-sized potholes are horrific. The Office is the greatest TV show ever created. Moving as a married couple should require counseling. Amen? Going to the dentist is a form of torture. I know there's dentists in here, no, no foul. I just, I just don't like it. I just don't like it. Another thing that we know through experience is that death is bad. Death is bad. Maybe you're that person that you're at the movies or watching a TV show, you're watching a movie at home, and anytime there's a scene where somebody dies, you may be like me and you uncontrollably cry. Maybe it's Mufasa dying in Lion King for the 70th time. Maybe it's where a scene in a, in a war where the, the person in the last scene dies, like Heath Ledger in The Patriot. Or maybe it's a scene where you, you've watched this character in a TV show and you don't know them, you don't even know who they are, but when they die, you feel something inside of you that this seems wrong. I mean, many of us have been to the funeral, right? Where the person is a follower of Jesus and this, this funeral is a celebration, but when you get to the casket, it's, something feels in your gut wrong. Just a few months ago, me and my wife celebrated the life of her Uncle Jay. Uncle Jay was a follower of Jesus, married to his precious wife for 70 plus years. His kids are following Jesus, and their kids are following Jesus, and their kids are following Jesus. And this funeral is a beautiful celebration of the testimony of Uncle Jay's life and how he's helped people follow Jesus his entire life. He was a godly man, and he was tired, he was in pain. And it was his time to pass. But when you go to that funeral and you walk up to that casket, something seems wrong. And in your gut, you, you feel the flood of emotions at that casket, at this graveside. It's like, why is it this way? We've all been there, right? What this text shows us in John chapter 11 is one singular truth. My prayer is that we see one singular truth. Death is bad. Death is real, but death is not final. Death is real, but death is not final. What I want to do this morning is walk through this passage of Scripture See these, this singular truth and see the implications for our lives as followers of Jesus. 
If you're new to Christianity, maybe you're just rolled in here checking us out this morning. What we typically do as a church is walk through books of the Bible, and we're in the Gospel of John. The, the Gospel of John is this glorious book, and the goal of the Gospel of John is to show us who Jesus is, and for us not just to know about him, but us marvel in him. So this story is going to tell us something about Jesus. So let's get to work in verse 1. Take a look at verse 1 with me. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. The funny thing about this verse is that the story of Mary washing Jesus' feet isn't in the text yet. That's in chapter 12. But what we know about this story is that people know about Mary already. This story had spread, this beautiful story about Mary washing Jesus' feet. The Gospel of John was actually written about 20 to 30 years after the Gospel of Matthew and Mark. The story had been around. So there, this is like somebody saying, you remember that person we know? This is a story about their brother dying. This wasn't just some friend, though. Look at verse 5. Look, what, look how this friend is described. Now, Jesus loved Mary and, her, and Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. It would seem that Jesus, seeing his friend was deathly ill, would say, let's go now. He says, let's wait two days. So he waits two days. He, he wants to go to Judea, and his disciples don't think this is a very good idea. Judea is where he was just about stoned just a few days earlier. And would, Jesus, what are you thinking? Why don't we go back to Judea? They tried to kill us there. But Jesus loved his friend. Then he gets the news of his death. Look at verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awake him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. <laughs> His disciples, we don't need to go there. You're not needed if he's just asleep. This is how I know Jesus was the first youth pastor. <laughs> Everything he said flew over these guys' heads. <laughs> and they were anxious and rambunctious. They want to do stuff they shouldn't have done. So Jesus in junior high pastor form says this, look at verse 14. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So let us go to them, but let us go to him. And Thomas, the junior hire, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Like what do you, nothing's referenced to Thomas ever again. He says, let's go die. <laughs> what? Jesus, this is when Jesus, like the junior high pastor, says, moving on. <laughs> so they go to Judea and we pick up the story in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found the, that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. That Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come 
to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to him and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd only been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So Jesus steps on this scene. This, this is a funeral. This is a sad, dark scene. People are weeping. These sisters are upset. And Martha, seeing, knowing that Jesus is coming in the city, she meets him and says, Jesus, where have you been? My brother died four days ago. Where were you? You could have done something about this. If you'd only been here, he wouldn't have died. It seems Martha's pretty upset. Mary says the same thing later in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is a statement of faith, but also a statement of bitterness. Jesus, you could have did something about this. You could have helped my brother. The, the weight of death had hit this family like you've felt it before, Right? You've been at the funeral and just that heaviness on your chest, unbearable. It hurts. And the weight of darkness, the weight of sin in death, the weight of the brokenness of the world seems heavy. Anytime a natural disaster, any kind of horrible things happen in this world, you see that in the news and you feel it. Something is wrong. And that pain isn't exempt from Jesus. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see so Mary and Martha and their friends weren't the only ones upset. The text says, verse 33, he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. These words kind of demonstrate a sense of disturbance, maybe even anger. So the question is, what is Jesus angry about? What is Jesus disturbed about? Maybe it could be that his friend had died, but he knows that his friend He's going to rise just in a few minutes. Why is Jesus so upset? But I argue that Jesus hates death. See, death isn't just something that happens at the end of our lives. Death is the result of the brokenness of the world. Genesis teaches us that death entered the world through sin. God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of that tree, you will die. And they eat of the tree. And thus ensues the curse of the world. This world is broken because of sin. And you know that, I know that. Nobody wakes up in the morning, checks their social media feed, and thinks, man, this place has got it going on. You're reminded every day the brokenness of this world you get that news of someone else having cancer. 
another child that dies because of a disease. People die because of a hurricane, another shooting. We're riddled with sin all around us. This brokenness has entered our world, and it's because of the curse of sin, and Jesus hates it. Jesus hates death because Jesus hates sin. If there would be no sin, there would not be any death. He's upset. Death exists because sin exists. He's looking upon this tomb. He's standing in front of it, just upset, deeply troubled. Then you find in verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Spurgeon said about these two words that there is infinitely more in these two words than any sermonizer or student of the word will ever be able to bring out of them, even if you should apply the microscope to the utmost attentive consideration. The king of the world who created the universe stands for the tomb of his friend and begins to weep. There's so many implications of those two words. One being, as a sidebar, if Jesus is the manliest man to ever exist, it means it's manly to weep. Men, you're not tough if you don't cry. Please don't teach your kids that. Jesus weeps because he feels the weight of pain and death. He's upset. Here's what's crazy about this. He, he weeps. He weeps even though his friend is about to rise. He weeps knowing the ultimate reality. He weeps knowing what's going to happen, but he still weeps. Sometimes we don't need but in our sentence when we're in pain. I'm, I'm hurting, but it's okay. I, we're struggling, but we'll be all right. Sometimes we just need to hurt. We just need to cry. We just need to feel the pain of sin and death on our hearts. Sin has rotted this world and it's brought Jesus to tears. Death seems like that thing that's unfixable, right? When somebody gets the news of a disease or an illness, you think there's some hope, but once you go to the funeral, there's no hope. Death is the final say, it seems. We must realize in this text and in reality that death is real. I've heard it said at a funeral, and I get what people mean by that, but they say we should just celebrate at funerals and cry when babies are born because they're entering a broken world and somebody's leaving a broken world. Friend, death is always bad. Always bad. Always bad. Death is never better than life. Jesus wouldn't weep. Friend, if death was better Jesus would have left Lazarus in the tomb. He would have just stayed there. He's in a better place. 
No, death is always bad. Friend, death is real, but thanks be to God that death is not final. Let's rewind to verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection of the last day. Seemed like Martha took her theology classes in Jewish school. She knew about a resurrection one day. She brought that theology to try to impress Jesus a little bit. But Jesus spun in a little bit. And look what he says in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Here's what Jesus is teaching his sister. That resurrection life isn't just something that happens one day. Resurrection life happens right now. John's gospel is trying to teach that over and over again. The words eternal life is used over 17 times in John's gospel. And what eternal life means, that life with God isn't just something we experience one day. Life with God can be had right now. See, God is transforming the world through his resurrection, and he's giving a taste of what full resurrection life is like. And sometimes we think, we'll just do this life right now, then one day we'll have the resurrection life. But the gospel in this text teaches us resurrection life is to be had right now. He's about to show them. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was the cave and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time he will, there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe you would see the glory of God? So Jesus comes to the tomb. He shows up at the funeral site, shows up at the gravesite. Just imagine this. If you're planning the funeral for your family member and you invite that friend that's from out of town, and they come to the graveside service and they look at you and say, hey, remove the top of the casket. You'd probably call the police to arrest that man. It'd be weird. Let's get him, let's get him out of there. We don't expect people to show up to the graveside service trying to resurrect our family members. And Jesus says to her, roll the stone away. And Martha, he's been dead four days, Jesus. There's an odor. The KJV says, he stinketh. See, what happens in, in, in Jewish life, there's two different scenarios going on. Two, one, there, there's this kind of tradition that a spirit hovers over the dead body for at least two days. And there's still a chance maybe of them being resurrected. Two, the Jewish people didn't preserve the bodies like other cultures. For example, Egyptian cultures would preserve the body, mummify the body as good as possible. The Jewish people would not do that. So they just had the funeral as soon as possible because the, the, the decay would happen as soon as possible. So Lazarus, his body has probably already started decaying and Jesus doesn't care. He's about to do something crazy. Look at verse 41. 
So he took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. This side note there, sometimes our prayers aren't just about us and Jesus. He says, I pray to you, not just for your sake, but the sake of the people around me. Sometimes we pray to encourage the people around us. So I do pastoral prayers every Sunday so the whole body would feel encouraged by prayer. Let's keep moving. Verse 43. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died come out, came out and his hands and his feet were bound in linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I'm just, I just now notice this. I imagine this scene where he, if he's bound, how's he getting out of that tomb? So he's, his feet are bound, his hands are bound, so he's hopping out of the tomb. And Jesus is looking, unbind the man. Get him out of there. He's alive. He's not dead anymore. Jesus, with three words, looks at a tomb Dark, with an odor, and raises him from the dead. This is not a new thing for Jesus. Jesus has done this before. He looked from the darkness of the world in Genesis 1, and there was nothing, nothing to be had. And he says to that world, let there be light, and there was. Jesus changes things with his words. And in this scene... Jesus gives us a picture of a a beautiful reality. That that curse that had conquered the world, it is now being disrupted. That curse that has just corroded our lives is being disrupted. He's given us a picture of death being defeated. Getting a picture about what he's about to go through. He's going to go to Jerusalem. And he's going to go to Golgotha. He's going to hang on a tree, suffocate to death. He's going to be buried in a tomb very similar to Lazarus. But on that third day, the tomb rolled away and the linens were stripped from him and he rose. And on that day, he took a flag for the kingdom of Christ. He put it in the ground and says, devil, sin, and death, you lose. You lose. He's given a picture that the curse no longer holds weight on this world. I do. Jesus' sole mission in his time on earth is to reverse the curse. This curse has riddled our world. Death seems to be the last victor of all of our lives. And Jesus looks at that victor and says, no more. I win. Jesus laid claim over victory in his death. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death, devil, sin, they lose in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus reversed the curse 
That's why one writer says, death has died in the death of Christ. He loses. He loses. We win. Death is real, but praise be to God that death is not final. So the question now is, okay, how do we live in light of this? We live in this realness of death, this pain. We see it every single day on the news. We even experience it in our lives. Death is real, but we know in our hearts that death is not final because Jesus has risen over the grave. How do we live? Well, first, know that your mourning is never meaningless. Verse 4 of chapter 11 when Jesus heard it said, heard this said, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Who says to his disciples in verse 14? Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And he said, for your sake, I'm glad that he was not there, that you may believe. In our pain, it seems sometimes or all the time to be pointless. You've asked the question like Martha and Mary did, Jesus, where were you? What are you doing? I'm over here suffering. Do you even know? Are you even involved? And this text teaches us this truth, that even though Jesus seems distant, he's not absent. He is not absent. He knows exactly the pain you're going through. He knows exactly what you're, you're doing, how you're feeling, and he has a plan even though you don't know it. Martha and Mary had no idea that Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but they couldn't trust the plan they didn't know. So they go to Jesus. Where were you? What were you doing? And I'm convinced in this text that Jesus wants to teach these people what faith really looks like. The Gospel of John is all about these people having deeper faith, having a stronger faith in the Lord and Savior Jesus. And here's what he's trying to teach Martha and Mary. That your faith is limited. I can do way more than you can ever imagine. Pastor Jim Shaddock says it like this. Mary and Martha thought Jesus could prevent death, but they didn't think he could reverse it. So Jesus shows up on the scene. They're they're looking at Jesus. Jesus, you could have done something about this. They're not saying, will you do something about this? They're saying, Jesus, you could have prevented this. Now we have to have a funeral. Sometimes in our pain, we think Jesus is limited. We put Jesus in a box. We we think he doesn't know what's going on. Therefore, I need to control the situation. Friend, your mourning is never meaningless. God is doing a million things in your pain and maybe not even one you know about. God is doing a work in your life, teaching you something. It may be the case in your life that Jesus takes all that you have from you just to teach you that he's all that you need. It may be the case that Jesus takes everything you have to remind you just for the fact that he's all that you need. 
Your greatest good in life is to be solely satisfied in Jesus. Everything else is extra. He may be doing a work in you just to help you understand that singular truth. Jesus is better than everything. First, know that your mourning is never meaningless. Secondly, in your pain, go toward Jesus, not away from him. In your pain, go toward Jesus, not away from him. Look at verse 20 in John chapter 11. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But look at this. But Mary remained seated in the house. She didn't want to see Jesus. Her pain had gotten to her differently than her sister. She was pretty upset. She remained seated. In her pain, she didn't go toward Jesus. She stayed right where she is. See, we're tempted in our pain to not go toward Jesus because sometimes maybe we think, well, if I go toward Jesus, I may experience more suffering. I may experience more pain. Why would I go to Jesus if he's the one that didn't help me in the situation I'm in? I think Jesus is limited in his control and his power. Run toward Jesus in your pain, not away from him. This is why Pastor Mark teaches us about lament. That's exactly what lament is, a prayer in pain that leads to trust. In your pain, you may be tempted and you may already be there to go toward other places to cope with that pain. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's addictions. I don't know what your coping mechanisms are in your pain, but we all have them. We all run to places other than Jesus in our stress and pain because we feel like they will help us in a way that nothing else has helped us. And what we find out is we're trying to run a car off water. It may fill up a tank, but we're not getting anywhere. And we keep going back to those empty cisterns that give us no hope. Friend, is that you today? Going toward empty cisterns that won't help you and haven't helped you? At the age of 16, I watched my best friend die. We're at football practice on a normal August hot practice day. And I watched my best friends since third grade. We're the only two boys in fifth grade. We had every girlfriend possible. <laughs> we played football together. In our junior year, in the middle of practice, Will fell out and passed away while I was talking to him. And in that pain, I felt the reality. If if this is Jesus' way of doing things, I'm going to put my hands on the steering wheel. Because when I go this route, suffering exists, and I don't want to feel that ever again. And the people around me may have thought I was this Christian guy. I did all the right things. I went to church on Sunday. I went to church on Wednesday. And on the outside, like many of us in this room, I looked good. But on the inside, I'm rotting. I'm miserable. 
Because my hands are on the steering wheel of life, and I'm making sure nobody else grabs it. Because anytime somebody else is in control of my life, suffering exists. And that steering wheel goes the wrong way. We land in the ditch, don't we? And we get back out, and we go into the wrong turn, and we have to go make a U-turn and come back. And we keep doing that over and over again. And we really, if we're honest, when we lay our head on the pillow, we're miserable. Because instead of going to Jesus in our pain, we keep going to other things that aren't helpful. In your pain, go to Jesus, not away from him. And the only reason we can do that is because we live, thirdly, we live for a savior who loves us more than anybody. What I love about this text is how unashamed Jesus is about his love for his friends. Verse three, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 36, Jesus weaves in verse 36, the Jews said, see how much he loved him. Jesus loved these sisters so much that people hundreds of years later, these heretical Gnostic leaders wrote letters trying to portray Jesus as having a relationship with Mary. And here's why. Like, it wouldn't make sense for a Jewish man to have that close a relationship with a woman. He loved these sisters so much. Do you know he loves you? Do you know that no, no Christian in this room right now is an accidental Christian? You know Jesus isn't the bouncer at the gates of heaven looking at the line and looking and seeing, evaluating, saying, ah, uh, I guess you can go in. Friend, Jesus doesn't say anybody, I guess. He goes after you like he went after Lazarus in your deadness and sin and saves you before you ever did anything for him. Ephesians 2 said, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air and the sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath, but verse three, but God in his great love for us raised us in Christ and made us alive and seated us in the heavenly places for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. You were dead. I was dead. We were bankrupt. We were in the tomb. The stone was rolled. It was sealed. There's no hope. But Jesus, before we were ever born, put his crosshairs on us and said, I love them. I love them. And that, that love didn't end at your salvation date. Friend, if, you, if you're in here and you've struggled with some type of sin and your goal is over here, I gotta watch myself up, then go to Jesus, that's not the gospel. Jesus loved you before you ever sinned. He loved you in spite of your sin. He still loves you today in your sin. So stop running to places to get cleaned up and run always to Jesus in your sin because he will have you every time because he loved you before you did it. Jesus on the cross is so beautiful. On the cross, he didn't look out in your future and say, man, I don't know if I can save them. They're going to mess up. 
On the cross, he looks at your future, knowing the sins you will commit tomorrow. And it says, I died for them all anyway. Jesus loves you. And it also means he loves that unbearable coworker next to you that's dead in their sins and needs salvation. That neighbor that you can't stand needs salvation. That child that's ran away needs salvation. And Jesus isn't in the business of fixing people. Jesus is in the business of raising dead people. So if Jesus can raise the dead, he can do anything. He can do something about that, you had addiction. He can do something about that marriage on the brink. He can do something about that wayward child. He can do something about that cancer. He can do something about anything you got going on in your life. He can do something about it because he can raise the dead. He can do anything. Jesus loves you more than anybody in your life. And that means we can go to him with anything. I know there's people in this room that haven't made that transfer from death to life. You're still in your deadness. You may look like a Christian. You may talk like a Christian. You may have Christian answers to things. But the reality is you're still dead and you know it. You haven't put your faith in Jesus. So I think this text prompts us to invite you to trust in Jesus. So what I'm going to ask in an old school way for every head bowed and every eye closed. As the band comes up, here's the invitation this morning. You're here, maybe you're here, and you don't believe in Jesus because you've experienced the pain. Why would I trust Jesus if he let my wife leave me? Why would, I, why would I love Jesus if he allowed my child to pass? Why would I follow Jesus if he let my family member die? And the invitation this morning is not naive to those Situations. In fact, the text this morning prompts us, invites us into those situations. So maybe you're here and you've given every excuse in the world not to follow Jesus, but today is a day of salvation that you give up those excuses and you follow Jesus. So with every head bowed, if that's you this morning, today I'd love to invite our elders to come up and help people follow Jesus. So maybe it's you today, you want to, Follow Jesus today. Zach, I'm tired of the excuse. I'm tired of running to the empty cisterns. I'm tired of running to the, the, the things that won't give me hope. And I'm, I want to go to Jesus because I can't find anything anywhere else in my life. If that's you, I invite you to stand up in your seat where you are. There's no doubt in my mind that somebody in this room hasn't put their faith in Jesus. And they come every week. They put on the Christian makeup, they know the Christian language, but they haven't put their faith in Jesus. If that's you, today you wanna make your day of salvation. Maybe you're a student here and you haven't done that, I'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. The best and most beautiful scene in the world is helping somebody go from death to life. Maybe you're here and you're, if you're honest, You've been running away from Jesus in your pain because you don't know if it's proper to go to him in your pain. You don't want to complain to him. You don't want to be disruptive. 
But maybe you need to pray with the elder this morning while we're worshiping that you're bitter inside. You haven't mourned the loss of that family member. You haven't gotten over that divorce. You're still struggling with that addiction. Today is a day to confess that to the Lord. As our band sings, we're going to sing about resurrection, and we're going to cry out to the Lord, thanking him for saving us and resurrecting us. But maybe some of you need to do work for the Lord, and our elders and their, some of their spouses will be down here. And our hope is to talk to you about that. Let's stand and sing.